Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Advocates for a bill to shift some local elections in New York, normally held in odd-numbered years to even-numbered ones, are urging Governor Kathy Hochul to sign it. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Senate sponsor James Scoopis says the bill would increase voter turnout and save money because it would consolidate many local elections normally held in odd-numbered years and that generate low voter turnout into even years. That's when statewide races, including for governor and presidential races, are held. He says the recently held local elections earlier in November are an example. You have 20, 30 percent of the electorate making decisions for the entire community. And, uh, you know, it's not as if uh, the rest of the community, the balance of the community uh, is not interested in generally voting because in those very same municipalities, you have in some cases 70, 80 percent of people who turn out uh, in some of the even numbered cycles. And so it's really a matter of trying to leverage that already high turnout in the even years and get more people the opportunity to weigh in on who's running their local town and who's running their local county. Senator Scoofus held a news conference attended by government reform advocates, including Susan Lerner of Common Cause. Lerner says the state holds so many elections on various dates throughout the year, including village elections in March, school budgets in May, as well as June primaries, that voters can become confused and weary. There's a concept called voter fatigue, and unfortunately, we are fatiguing our voters. Opponents include some Republicans, including North Country Congresswoman Elise Stefanik and the New York Association of Counties. They say if local races are held when high-profile contests for governor and president are run, then local candidates' voices could get lost in the mix. Scoofus and other supporters argue that the higher turnout in the even years will give more attention to local candidates for office. Governor Hochul has not yet said whether she will sign the measure. A spokesman would only say that the governor is reviewing the legislation. But in June, Hochul was asked about the measure, and she said that she agreed with the concept. Yes, if you're talking about turnout, I would say having the year when there's more people turning out for either a presidential or a gubernatorial race, uh, it, it increases turnout, and more people voting in these elections is always better for democracy. Uh, but I've not had a chance to look at the details. The bill does not include all local elections. Some, like county sheriff, district attorney, and city elections, are required by the New York State Constitution to be held in odd-numbered years. Senator Scoofus says if the measure becomes law, he's already drafted a constitutional amendment. It would allow the rest of the races to also be held in even-numbered years. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This week I spoke about hunger across New York State with Natasha Pernicka, 
executive director of the Alliance for a Hunger-Free New York and the food pantries for the Capital District. More than one in 10 New Yorkers are experiencing hunger. It's over 2 million people. And I want to say when we talk about hunger, we're really talking about food insecurity or nutrition insecurity. So when we're talking about who's hungry, it's people who don't have the resources for or access to enough nutritious food for a healthy and active life. It's not just the people that you see out on the corner, you know, begging. It's regular people. We talk about numbers. So a really good way to think about this is, you know, yes, of course, there's people who are low wage workers. So you've got, you know, administrative assistants, low-wage workers. You have people who can't work for whatever reason. You have older adults who are living on extremely limited incomes. And I'd like to talk a little bit about ALICE. The ALICE report is something that United Way puts out. ALICE stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. That basically means people are working, but they don't have enough resources to just cover their basic needs. So across New York State, give or take, it's about 40% of the population in New York State, 40% of households are either living in Alice, so they're working but don't have enough resources, or living in poverty, 40% of households. It's across the state, urban, rural, suburban. It's not just a city problem. That is a striking and somewhat shocking number, isn't it? I think it is. I think we don't talk about it enough. I think we don't talk about who uses food pantries enough. I mean, some of you may have heard me talk about my own grandparents. My grandpa was a union carpenter in Chicago back in the day, and when my grandparents were up in age, they used a food pantry because they had such limited income and we don't provide enough resources for our community members to make ends meet. Let's put more faces on this. I've been hearing about hunger on college campuses. So students who may be there on aid of some kind already or even just students who are spending every dime they can on the college expenses and then can't afford the food on top of it. That's a great point. That came about, we had a huge initiative here in New York State, actually when Cuomo was governor, to have a food pantry on every state college campus. And that initiative was successful, and it really raised a lot of awareness about the fact that college students were going without. And you can't be successful as a student if you're worried about not having food. You're not going to be able to focus and concentrate. Your grades are going to suffer. And the problem with the initiative at this point is now we get to a point where the campuses have pantries or they're partnered with community pantries and there isn't funding to continue the initiatives. And so it ends up being a part of an employee's job to run the pantry. You know, it's like, oh, here, just do this too. And it actually takes a lot of work and time. So I'm hopeful that college campuses across New York State can continue having access. But pantries are really the third choice for addressing hunger. When we talk about how do we stop the problem in the first place, number one, it's living wages. We know New York is an expensive state to live. It's not news. In fact, the census poll pulse survey, they compared July of 2021 to July of 2023, it's a two-year, and one of the questions on the survey was, do you have enough food to make it through the week? And the number of New Yorkers who said no increased over 80% compared to 35% nationally. That 
is a crisis. We're not getting the governor's attention, though. And we keep repeating these statistics and stories. And we're at a point now where we really need the state to step up and put money at it. It is a money issue. So if the state can't address living wages, number two, there is an effort to increase the amount of SNAP benefits in New York State. That's the number two way to end hunger. People can use their SNAP benefits, formerly known as food stamps, at a grocery store so they can choose. You know, they have more dignity in the cultural appropriateness of the foods, things they're used to eating. What's the threshold, though? I can remember back in the day, right out of college, where I was barely making enough and couldn't afford rent and food. And I went down to see if I could get food stamps. And they said, no, you make $400 a month. That's slightly above the amount to qualify for food stamps. So I was sort of in this weird gap where they said, no, sorry, you make too much money, but I certainly didn't make enough to survive. Yeah, I don't have the exact threshold number, but a lot of people fall into that category. And that's where charity fills in the gaps. That's where food pantries fill in the gaps. But do they really fill in the gaps? Food pantries do the best they can. Food pantries that receive funding through the Department of Health, it's called HIPNAP, Hunger Prevention Nutrition Assistance Funding, are required to provide a minimum of three days worth of groceries once a month. That's the minimum. So what we're seeing happening is pantries that are giving more food if they can or people go to multiple food pantries. Like I go to multiple grocery stores because certain grocery stores have certain products. Pantries are the same way. And so people who have to rely on food pantries on a regular basis shop the pantries like you would a grocery store because this one pantry might have diapers. This pantry has personal hygiene products. This one usually has meat because the other one you go to doesn't have a, a freezer, right? It's not the answer, though. It's a Band-Aid solution. And honestly, food pantries are struggling right now across the state. The state did not increase the dollar amount of the HIPNAP funding in the last budget cycle. It was flat funded with food inflation. Um, It really equates to an $8 million net loss. All right, let's stop right there. So food insecurity, if you look at it, is a lot worse than we realize. 40%, you're saying, if you combine it all, of New Yorkers are in some sort of situation when it comes to being able to eat properly. Yes. And lawmakers see these statistics. They are probably presented with some of these options by your own organization when it does awareness campaigns. Yes. So what's not getting through? Why wouldn't they, why would they keep the rate there? Is it Something about the poor that doesn't make lawmakers move quickly? (laughs) Oh, there's so much to say. But in response, I really am frustrated at this point because we have provided the governor's office, people in the chamber, as well as different legislative members. And the Alliance for Hunger-Free New York is a newer organization. While we carry on the tradition of Hunger Action Network, our organization is newer to, you know, raising awareness and advocacy. And it really came out of 2020 when the food pantry members here in New York's capital region, um, we work with about 70 pantries here, our pantries, as well as our board members, our staff, all felt like we absolutely had to take political action at this point because the duress that people were facing, as well as the pantry workers, we needed someone to be speaking on behalf of that. So, yes, it's frustrating. Um, You know, I know the governor is focusing on housing, which is also a critical basic need, but you can't prioritize housing over hunger. They're both equally important.
Well, let's look at this, Natasha Pernicka, who is the executive director of both the Alliance for a Hunger-Free New York and the Food Pantries for the Capital District. There are some basic needs in our society. You talked about a living wage, which if we had kept up with the cost of living increases since there was a living wage, let's say back in the 50s, the average salaries would be a heck of a lot higher now. Instead, they give you COLA increases and say 2 and 4% is a raise. Well, it doesn't keep up with inflation. We know that. So let's say because of business lobbying and everything else, and we're in a capitalist society, you're not going to get that living wage. Then there's these other options. What are these basic needs? Healthcare, that's a huge cost to people. You took that cost away, there'd be a little more money for food. Education, we just talked about these people who are in college who are also struggling to afford food, a free quality education. And then the third you just mentioned, housing, a roof over my head, something that I can afford so that I can live comfortably. Now, you give people a situation where their lives improve, their, quote, productivity would probably improve, and they'd be less likely looking to do something illegal in order to get the resources to afford to eat. That's a really good point. In fact, an amazing woman who just retired and ran a food pantry in Troy, New York, used to talk about this a lot, especially with youth, teenagers. She said, you keep those kids' bellies full and you're going to keep them off the streets. They're not going to get into trouble trying to find ways to earn money so that they can have food to eat. And I think most people who are struggling with food insecurity, you know, parents are having to make difficult choices. They're giving the food to their kids. That's what parents do. There's been several surveys, and that's what parents do. They give their children the food, but then if they're working or just trying to get through the day, this is absolutely unacceptable in the great state of New York to not resource people so that they have food to eat. That's Natasha Pernicka, executive director of the Alliance for a Hunger-Free New York and the food pantries for the Capital District. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A report released by State Attorney General Letitia James this fall shows significant racial disparities in home ownership across New York, but the city of Albany is nearly the worst in the nation. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. The report details deep racial disparities in home ownership and access to home financing across the state. Among its top findings is a stark racial gap in home ownership rates in every region in New York, with white households owning their homes at nearly double the rate of households of color. United Tenants of Albany Executive Director Canyon Ryan says the AG's finding that the city of Albany has the nation's second largest gap between black and white homeowners comes as no surprise. Last year, Albany County had the fourth most evictions of any county in the state above you know, the New York City boroughs. So that's per renter. So per populace, we also greatly struggle with evictions. And again, that's a, a racial and economic issue. In a majority renter city, then it's no surprise that with increasing rents and increasing 
housing scarcity, which you know proliferates issues around rent, but also people's ability to keep up with the rent. Albany has a poverty rate that's twice the national average. All of this kind of combines into a situation where low-income renters have no prospect of becoming homeowners, and if anything, it's more likely that they'll face an eviction proceeding before they face a new opportunity to purchase a home. The report found people of color who applied for mortgages in 2021 were more likely to be denied than white applicants. It also found that Albany, Long Island, and Rochester had fewer mortgage applications from communities of color within city limits. Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan. It's not surprising what the Attorney General found. The findings applied to the entire capital region, and it wasn't just the city of Albany. I think the racial disparities around homeownership are even starker in some of our surrounding suburban communities, but it's why we knew when we had the opportunity with ARPA money that we had to invest in homeownership opportunities. And so we're funding 100 new Habitat homes. Those are homeownership opportunities right here in the city of Albany and a number of other smaller projects. We're putting our money where our mouth is to address this issue that we know exists not just here, but across the country. Albany's chief city auditor and recently declared mayoral candidate, Dorcia Pleers, finds the AG's report discouraging. The sad part is there's nothing new under the sun here. And I am concerned that we have become so desensitized to the blatant disparities in particular racial disparities when it comes to housing and um, economic prosperity for people of color in this city. And so what I think the report does from the AG's office, but also if you look back, uh, there was a report by the Urban Institute, which basically the the headline was that Albany is one of the worst places to live for uh, people of color. Hoping to rewrite that headline is Charles Tui, whose foundation has provided funding to help people of color buy homes in the capital region in the form of a grant, $10,000 if you buy a house in Albany. Because black families have been shut out of home ownership, new black families who want to buy houses can't go back to their family for this cash that they need to get to the clothing. And so our fund is a recognition of the injustice, and it's why it's called Recurative Justice Fund, the injustice for black families of not being able to have that final amount of cash that helps them over the top. And what, since we've been doing the program, we've helped about 150 families in Albany, Troy, and Schenectady. And so that's nice, and we're happy about it. But we're only one organization, and the Attorney General's report addresses the structural problems of the lenders themselves not being interested in this. And, for example, when the land bank, our land bank, built, uh, inaugurated our first homeowner-built house at 360 Sheridan Avenue in Albany, and we had a press conference, and we want to sell this to someone in the neighborhood. This is a red-line neighborhood. Not a single bank stepped forward and said, we'd like to do the mortgage on this family. So that sort of tells you how lenders are still standing on the sidelines in terms of making a sincere effort to help black families.
Apleers notes the AG's report recommends subsidizing down payments for first-generation homeowners while investing in more community-centric banks that would ensure representatives from communities of color have better access to capital. We need to now spring into action. Implementing the recommendations that have come out in the report, but also have been coming out for decades, investing the resources um, where they need to be and doing so aggressively. So educating people about what it means to be a homeowner, why it's important, how it creates generational wealth. If you don't know um, the link between home ownership and generational wealth, why would one look at or prioritize investing in home ownership? So I think we have to start at a very basic level, given the, the gaps that we're seeing, and really inform residents about why it's important to, to own your own home. Before we can even get to um, making or simultaneously uh, making funds available for first-time homeowners, uh, because that's important, but the, you can't do that without the education piece. There's a link to the report at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A Capital Region State Assembly member is introducing legislation aimed at growing and improving statewide trail access. The Legislative Gazette's Alexander Babby reports. Speaking at Corning Preserve in her 109th District, State Assemblywoman Pat Faye says the Greenway Trails for Green Future package will modernize and expand the statewide bicycle trail system and provide for additional safety measures for riders. The Democrat notes the pandemic made people want to be outside, with more than four and three-quarter million riders on the 750-mile Empire State Trail in 2022 alone. It brings millions of dollars and has a huge multiplier effect into our local economies, launches businesses along the trail, and uh, as, as well as uh, many entrepreneurial ventures. Our New York State Comptroller, Tom DiNapoli, estimated that our outdoor recreation provides $21 billion and 240,000 jobs each year. The package seeks to provide for improved pedestrian and cyclist safety, expands the state's trail systems, and addresses trail detours. Faye says better detour signage will be required, especially considering worsening weather. When the Dunn Memorial Bridge was out, pedestrians uh, uh, had no um, signage there for safer detours. We authorized the development of recreational trails in power along power line corridors, which is critically important because we have these power lines often going through some of our most scenic areas, and we can take full advantage of that to build uh, better multi-use trails there and, and expand upon what we already have. Paul Steely-White, Executive Director of Parks and Trails New York, says Greenway trails are the spines communities use to build out local bikeway networks. It's a great way to build more wildlife refuges, outdoor recreation and tourism, 
economic development, right? From Middletown to Medina, communities are leveraging the economic development power, building their local economies, not just with tourism, right? Location, 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 location. Ed Brennan, president of the Albany Bicycle Coalition, says it's especially important as cars become more expensive. Many of our neighbors cannot afford motor vehicles or choose eco-friendly bicycling and active transportation over indebtedness. In 2019, the Capital Region Transportation Council released its Capital District Trails Plan. It looked to expand the 89-mile hodgepodge of multi-use trails that we had and bike routes uh, in Albany, Rensselaer, Schenectady, and Saratoga counties into a 289-mile network of 18 connected trails. Some progress has been made, but we need legislation like the Green Trails for a Future Act to facilitate funding and siting. Robin Haberman, AERP's Associate State Director of Community Engagement for New York, says the project provides critically needed open spaces. Expanding access to outdoor spaces would benefit New Yorkers of all ages and abilities, and it would also help New York further their commitment as the first state to join the World Health Organization and AARP network of age-friendly states and communities and making all of our regions more livable for people of all ages. Albany City Treasurer Darius Sean Farr says it builds on previous efforts, including the installation of a walking trail in the Tivoli Lake Preserve, connecting it with Livingston Ave and Patroon Creek. We created the city's first physically separated two-way cycle trail in the South End Connector. Just this past summer, we announced a new phase of the project that will add public amenities like better seating and outdoor gym space and designated spaces for food trucks and pop-up events. Brennan rode his bike to the conference and says he doesn't own a car. My wife lost her car and uh, I decided, well, I'm going to try to bike to work. And uh, not only was I able to do it, but it saved us a car payment for 12 years. Uh, I was able to pump that money into my retirement and retire early. So uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great bonus for me. He says that saved him well over $100,000. He's retired now and has kept going. I had three different routes. I could make it if I was in a hurry. I could get there in five and a half miles, going to not from like 10 miles. But typically I would leave extra early just because I like the ride to work so much that I could ride two miles the wrong direction so I can enjoy the ride down the Empire down the, uh, at a, uh, the trail, the uh, Albany County Rail Trail and along the Empire State Trail to get down here. And I would get into work and I would be so much more at ease than all the people that were coming to work, that were competing, coming down the Northway and the like, and I would get there earlier. I was always the first guy there. Stephen Blosser is an Albany resident and avid biker. I always prefer rail trails and bike trails to stay away from cars and stuff. I don't feel like I need to wear my helmet. I take it easy. I get to enjoy myself, enjoy the day. And my dog just loves running with me. Governor Kathy Hochul's office says the Democrat will review the legislation should it pass both houses of the legislature. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Alexander Babby. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2348. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org.